0: the question, what are we making? That's what we're going to be studying for the entirety of this fall semester here at the chapel. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. My name is James Green. I'm the associate pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel, and I get the real privilege for the first three weeks of this study, I'm going to kind of lead us down this path to talk about discipleship. Pastor Danny's going to be really entrenched with the Nehemiah Project guys. He's going to be leading and discipling those guys, and so I'm going to jump in and start this series, and he's going to come in towards the end of the month. But this is what we're going to be focusing on. This idea of discipleship. the name of the series is Make. That's a pretty broad term, but it's intentionally so. We did that for a reason. Because hopefully, that'll help us eliminate any excuses we may have in the past for not making disciples. Because when we think about it, we're all making stuff. But have we been putting our effort into making money or making ourselves comfortable or making a name for ourselves, making the most of a bad situation, whatever it is, but not making disciples? So today we're going to start at square one. We're just going to begin with that broad notion of making. And so the question is, if we're going to make something, if we're going to make anything, what do we need? I have some ingredients up here. I don't know if you can see all my ingredients or not. i got some flour and some sugar, some brown sugar, some white sugar, some salt, some eggs, butter, some chocolate chips. That might give it away. What do you think I could make with this? Somebody in the service last night called out, pizza. I was like, no, no, that's not exactly it. But, but with, with this kind of stuff, I had a pretty good shot at making some chocolate chip cookies. I'd have a decent chance at that. But the idea is I need more than just this. I need more than just the materials. When I was on Young Life staff, we used to do this great kind of intentional thing where we'd have cookie club. And the idea was we'd get together, and then I'd, I'd set up a bunch of homes around town, and this is what they're supposed to have. When kids showed up with a leader at a home, the, the people were supposed to have all these ingredients out on the counter. They were supposed to have the oven preheated. But here's the one thing they couldn't give the kids. It was a recipe. <laughs> couldn't give them any kind of instruction whatsoever on how to make cookies. So they just had to take the stuff and throw it together and see what they came up with. It was kind of a race, and they had to come back to Young Life Club, and then I was always the tasting judge. That was a horrible job. <laughs> Why volunteered for that? Because the stuff, a lot of times they'd come back, was not, was not very cookie-like, you know. <laughs> but, but the idea is it was trying to teach us something. It was always a great club night, and everybody would enjoy it. But then later in the week, we'd meet with those kids we were intentionally discipling. We'd meet with the kids who knew Jesus, and we were walking with them and pouring into their lives and say, hey, why did we do cookie night? Do you know why we did that? And most of them wouldn't get it, and so we'd have to stop and explain, hey, it's great to have materials to work with, but if you don't know what you're doing with them, you're not going to accomplish much. So here's the deal on making something. You need to have some materials, and then you need to have some ability. You need to have some talent or some knowledge, some kind of instruction. It doesn't matter if you're making Legos or baking, whatever it is. You have to have some raw material to work with, and you have to have some talent to know what to do with the material. As part of our staging deal with make, we got a p- bunch of paint up here. Now, real honestly, like if I didn't know what wall to paint what color, could I come up with anything impressive out of a bunch of cans of paint? No, not a chance. And, and the thing we know for sure is, the paint's not going to jump out of the cans and throw itself on the wall by itself. We've got to put those things together. The big idea with that cookie night was that we'd help these young disciples see they needed to get plugged into a church after they met Jesus. Young life was not going to be their church form. They needed to be in a church where they could get the recipe for what God wanted them to do with their lives, a place where they could grow and serve and worship together. And we told them, hey, receiving the gift of salvation is incredible. That's the greatest thing you're ever going to get. But then it's not God's desire for you to remain a baby Christian the rest of your life. You need to go find a place with other Christ followers where you can be on mission, where you can grow in your love and knowledge of the Lord and share the good news of the gospel message, and then you're going to make disciples and repeat and do it over and over again. So I'm going to hit this one more time because this is important. To make something, we need materials, and then we need some ability, some talent, some knowledge. That's ground zero if you're making anything. It doesn't matter if you're sculpting Play-Doh or making cookies or building a house or making disciples. So that's going to be the essence of the series. And as Christ followers, I really think that should resonate with us. Although I know it's hard because we live in a society that has really pushed the importance of make far away. The thing we seem to embrace so much more now is consume. We're a nation of consumerism. But here's a good question. When we do make stuff, who does it really belong to? You know, if God uses us to build something or create something or invent something, where did the materials come from? Where did the talent and the ability come from? Scripture puts it this way in James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from where? It's from above. It's from God. He gives us those things. So everything we have comes from him. So while we're going to join him in the work of making, that's the mandate we're looking at today, when we join him, he still gets all the glory. Because everything we have comes from him. Love the joke about the evolutionary scientist who went to God and said, God, we don't need you anymore. We've got to the spot now where we can make everything. Through science and experimentation, we've worked it all out. We can make everything. And God says, well, come on, don't you still need me to make people? He's like, oh, no, we got that covered. We got cloning. We're good. We can make everything. God said, well, how about we have a little contest? We'll go out, we'll go out into nature and, and we'll each make a person. And the scientist goes, we're on. Let's go. So they go out into a field, and God bends down, and he scoops up some dirt. And then the evolutionary scientist bends down, and he starts to scoop up some dirt, and God says, whoa, get your own dirt. Everything we have comes from God. We have to understand that. My family moved across town last year. We lived over here by the church, and I loved the house, but it had a few too many stairs for me as I'm getting older. And, uh, and so we moved across town, and one of the things we really missed was we had this great screened-in porch. Really loved the porch. And when we moved in, it wasn't that great a screened-in porch, but, but I did a lot of work on it. I painted it and I replaced all the screens, and I put in a ceiling, and I put in a new ceiling fan, and I tiled the floor. And when people would come over, they're like, oh, man, that's great. We love that room. We spent a lot of time there. And so I still see some of my old neighbors, my old friends. I love them to death. And, and just last week, I ran into two different sets of them, and the first thing they did, they came up and told me, oh, my gosh, you won't believe. It. They tore down your porch. People who bought your house, they tore that porch out. I mean, I I appreciated them, you know, for being the neighborhood watch and for for looking out for me, you know, but but there's a couple of inherent problems with that notion that they were tearing down my porch. Because number one is, I no longer own that house. In whatever sense that was my porch, you know, mine and the bank's porch, I lost that claim as soon as I sold the house. But here's number two, and I think it's even more important. Was it really ever mine to begin with? God gave me the money to buy the materials. God gave me the ability to do all that work. I learned how to lay tile by watching my father-in-law do it. That's how I learned. That's a great way to learn things, by following somebody else's example. But he showed me, and then that's how I went and did it. But here's the deal. God gave me the ability to do the job. So in this passage we're going to look at today, we're going to see that we're called to make disciples. And we're going to spend the whole semester talking about it. So I'm begging you. Don't check out right now and say, oh, man, that's too big. I I just can't do that. That's too hard. Nothing like that. Just dig in because we're going to see it's a command. It's a mandate from Jesus for his followers, and he'll be with us as we do this task. And here's why we're focusing on this, and I think we'll see this clearly throughout the day. Discipleship is critically important to this church. It's critically important to the universal church of believers. I'd say discipleship for the local church is like the steering wheel for your car. If you had a really nice car, it was all nice and shiny, you waxed it, and all fluid levels right, and belts and hoses are good, radio bumps, I mean, everything looks real good. You've got a gas pedal, brake pedal, but you have no steering wheel. Are you really going anywhere? I mean, you, you could get in the seat and jam on the gas <laughs> and see what had happened. I wouldn't suggest it, you know, because you'd have no idea where you're going. You wouldn't have any direction at all we're going to see discipleship is that thing that steers the church, because it's about following God. If we don't focus on it, if we don't challenge people to do it, then we're cruising along without a steering wheel. We may be missing the most important thing God would give us to help us grow, be the kind of church that he wants us to be. Now, this is just an aside. If you're new to the chapel, we don't normally do this. We don't normally take off a huge chunk of time just to deal with topics. If you've been here for a while, you know typically what we do, is we tackle books of the Bible. And we kind of walk through them chapter by chapter, verse by verse. That's kind of the, the thumbprint of what we do. And we're going to return to that. We'll jump back into that in January. I don't know what book we're going to do. I'm sure we won't do Hebrews or Revelation or First or Second Corinthians or James or Haggai or Philemon or Habakkuk because we've all done you know, those pretty recently. But some book of the Bible we're going to jump back into. But occasionally when we recognize something as being one of the core things, One of the main things of Christianity, one of the steering wheels, then we'll stop and take some time and really address that and try and figure out how to apply it in our lives. We did that a couple years ago with evangelism. You Remember our Reach 2 series? Well, that's what we're doing this fall with the Make series. It's going to be about discipleship. And so you'll notice almost all of our roads, almost all our efforts will be about discipleship. I mentioned Dan's involvement, Cliff's involvement with that Nehemiah project. Man, we feel like God has really put something neat in our path with that. That's an intentional discipleship exercise. You can sign up out in the lobby for the women's retreat next weekend. I'd encourage you to do that. Our dear friend Lindsay Gustafson is going to come back, talk to ladies about discipleship. Please sign up for that. All the evening small groups we're doing this fall will talk about discipleship. You can still sign up for those in the lobby or online. We want you to understand we're committed to talking about this for the whole fall. Now, before we really jump in in earnest today, I want to kind of give you a quick overview of what this is going to look like then, because we're going to look today at the mandate in Scripture to make disciples. We're going to see clearly it's a command from Jesus. Next week, we're actually going to examine the meaning of the word disciple. We're kind of using it today in this notion of being a follower of Christ, being a student. But next week, we'll really dig in, because there's even a subtle change in how it's used in the Gospels and how it's used in the book of Acts. We'll look at that word. Next week, we're going to look at the number one model of discipleship in Scripture, and you know the answer to this. It's Jesus. It's the way Jesus Christ lived. week after that, we're going to spend some time looking at the measure or the marks of a true Christ follower. We're going to spend a couple weeks studying a manual for discipleship because we don't want to just stand up here and say some things. We want to give you some how-tos. We want to give you some application. And after that, we'll look at specific examples from Scripture, folks who have done discipling in God's Word. And then we're going to wrap up the series with a challenge, so I'm just prepping you for this now. Some of the challenge starts today. We're going to wrap it up talking about mission. The idea of making disciples is a mission. It wasn't just for the folks who heard the message when Jesus gave it on the mountain. It's for us today. It's for everybody who's professed genuine faith in Christ. So let's jump in. Turn with me in your Bibles or open your Bible app, however you follow along, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 20. And this is going to be a passage a lot of us are familiar with. We look at this passage almost every missions conference, and with good reason. Almost every time we talk about evangelism, we look at this passage. It makes sense. But today, as we read the verses, I want us to be thinking in our minds, discipleship. Because this is literally the mission of the church. Matthew records here what Jesus is telling his disciples to do, and it's this easy. Make disciples. Make disciples who make more disciples. That's the core of the mission that Jesus gives. It's to disciple for those folks who heard it then, for us today. So let me set just a little context for this passage. Here the resurrected Jesus is going to appear to the 11 remaining disciples. Judas has left the building at this point in time. These are the guys he spent three years with. He's been living with them. He's been pouring into them, instructing them, teaching them. He's done life with them. These are the guys he's picked to walk along with him on the earth while he's carrying out his father's mission. And now he's going to give them this huge instruction as he gets ready to leave. He gives them this mandate that not only applies to them, but to us. And here's what it says in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. See, authority had been given to Jesus by God, and now Jesus is telling the disciples, on the basis of that authority, here's the mandate. Make disciples. There's other important stuff going on in that passage. There's the notion of where to do this. The text says of all the nations. So we know right away this doesn't apply just to Old Testament Israel. It's supposed to be limited by geography. If you read the passage in Greek, there's one command. Make disciples. And then there's three participles that accompany that command, and they're important. Go, baptize, and teach. Now, go is pretty easy. Go is simply go. Get moving. Get off your couch. Here he's saying, get off this mountain and go do this. He's saying, go and spread the good news of the gospel message so that people will hear it and respond in faith. Then once they do that, once they put their trust in Christ, you're supposed to do something else. You're supposed to baptize them and teach them. These are important concepts to grasp here because they're the framework. They're the recipe, if you will, for how we're supposed to make disciples. We understand God is the one who calls people into a relationship with himself. So Jesus tells the disciples, God has the power, but he's given it to me and I'm gonna trust it to you. And now he's trusted it to us, to all of us, to do the legwork of making disciples. So since we know that, we need to get going. (laughs) And then we need to baptize. And why is that important? I think that's a little bit of an explanation of discipleship making. When somebody joins this church, you've seen this before, they get baptized and they join, it's exciting. An important thing to do when somebody becomes a new creation in Christ is to get them connected, get them plugged into a place where they can grow and serve and worship and have a place to make disciples and be cared for, shepherded, equipped. That's what we want to do. And so you've seen that when folks get baptized, they stand up here, and they publicly profess faith in Christ, they identify with Christ, and then they do it in front of a bunch of people who can hold them accountable. To what? To grow, to serve, to go make disciples, to be equipped. That's part of the connection. That's why baptizing is such an important part of that make mandate. So the text says do that. Make disciples by going, baptize them, and then it gets a little tough. This last one sounds pretty hard. I think that's why Jesus offers some encouragement at the end of the passage. He says, we're to teach new disciples to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That's pretty easy, right? Teach them to obey everything that Jesus said. How on earth are we gonna do that? That's why we're gonna spend the whole semester on this. This is a big deal. To do that, to teach new disciples to observe everything that Jesus commanded, we're gonna have to live our lives with them. We're gonna have to spend time pouring into these new disciples. We're going to have to be willing to hold them accountable when they mess up. We're going to have to be willing to celebrate huge with them when they don't mess up. We're going to have to be able to understand we can't do it exactly like Jesus. That's why we're going to look at so many other examples out of Scripture. Because as makers, we're not Jesus. We're going to mess up. And so we have to be willing to just be transparent, but ourselves keep following hard after Jesus in our lives so we can be in this together otherwise, our disciples will stagnate. Teaching new disciples to observe everything Jesus commanded should sound impossibly hard for us. I'm positive that's why Jesus ends that passage with the reminder that we don't have to do it alone. If you look back at the end of verse 20, what does it say? He is with us always. We'll be in this together, us and Jesus. Throughout this Make series, we're going to operate under this assumption, please don't prove me wrong in this, that once we do our part, Once we're obedient to go out and make disciples, then we'll be committed to help them mature. Not so they can brag about how knowledgeable they're getting, but so that they can go back. They can circle back and make more disciples. They can be obedient to the command themselves. This is how it should look. When this works, the cycle should look like this picture up on the screen. Disciples are going to be made, and then they mature. And the mature disciples go out and multiply. They go and find someone or several someones to pour into. All three of those steps are really important because if you think about it, this is how Christianity spreads. This is how the church grows and follows Jesus. This is why we're all sitting here today in a church in southeast Missouri. I mean, Jesus didn't show up and become a man in Jackson, right? He didn't spend his whole life walking between Sykeston and St. Genevieve. We get that. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, and he never left that area. And after he died on the cross for my sin and for your sin, he was resurrected and he appeared to these guys, his disciples. And he gave this huge mandate and he said, you go do it. You've seen me do it up close for three years now. You go do it. You make disciples all over the world. And they did. And they didn't get off to a great start if you read in scripture. They struggled a little bit. The apostle Paul got it and he wasn't on the mountain. He had his own mountaintop experience, the Damascus Road experience in Acts 9. He got it, and he was fired up. But the other disciples kind of seemed like they wanted to hang around their hometown for a while. And Paul said, it's okay, I got this. You guys take Jerusalem. I'll take everything else. But eventually, we understand they got it. And the reason we know that is we're sitting here today in a church in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Here's the reality. Jesus didn't personally have to give the gospel message to everyone. He had a better idea. He's Jesus. It's this weird miracle of multiplication. I I don't do the math on it very well. I'm not wired to comprehend this. If you have a pocket protector or two at home, you probably like this. This is your thing. My wife geeks out over stuff like this. but, But here's the reality. Let's pretend I was the greatest evangelist in the world. And so for the next 20 years, all I do is commit myself completely to sharing the gospel and then letting God use me to win folks to himself. And he uses me so effectively, you see the picture, that I lead 1,000 people to put their faith in God, totally in him, by grace through faith in Jesus. I do that every year. Now clearly, I'm not going to have any time to be discipling anybody. But come on, I am leading 1,000 folks to Christ every year. So at the end of 20 years, there'd be 20,000 believers in Christ around me. That's me in the picture. I'm skinnier in silhouette. But, but here's the deal, if I did that, I wouldn't have made it to just barely past half of Cape Girardeau. I mean, 20,000 folks is a nice number. That's a good number. But if that's what I've done, then I've produced, time out. God has produced using me, 20,000 kind of baby Christians because I sure didn't walk along and disciple them. I didn't have time. I said, okay, you heard the gospel, you know Jesus, good, fantastic. See you in heaven, I'm on to the next one. That's what I'd do. What if I did it differently? What if God led me to really grasp this mandate to make disciples? He really convicted me of the need to just pour into one person. And that one person would be equipped to be part of that cycle. They'd grow and mature, and they'd multiply themselves. What would that look like after 20 years? Well, after year one, you see the slide, it's not so impressive. We'd have two. (laughs) After year one the other way, I'd led 1,000 people to Christ. Here we've got one other person. But here's where the math gets wild. If we assume the cycle never breaks down, every new believer in Christ gets this mandate to make disciples, to mature, to multiply. And they commit to seeing at least one person saved and discipled every year. At the end of two years, there'd be four people. If you follow me on the math, at the end of three years, there'd be eight. After four years, it would be 16. But at the end of the 10th year, the math works on this, I promise, there'd be 1,024 discipled believers. And if you go all the way out to year 20, this is pretty incredible, there'd be 1,048,576 discipled, equipped, gospel-sharing believers in Christ. By myself, as a super evangelist, I led 20,000 people to Christ. With this idea, being serious about the mandate to make disciples, at the end of 20 years, one person could have over a million folks who will continue to go and make disciples. One person's life that's faithfully multiplied, God could use that to produce over a million disciples. If you go past 20 years, the math gets stupid. It's just, I mean, it's ridiculous how it works. This is how Christianity is spread. So here's where we see, I can't wiggle around this mandate. Here's the truth, and it's a little bit of a slap. It's, it's a hard reality. There's really very little value for us to be mature believers in Christ if we're not Going back and reaching out to somebody who's lost, and doesn't know Jesus, or somebody who's less mature in their faith, there's really very little value in that. The value is only for us because we're going to go to heaven. But you have to ask the question, how are we doing on that command to obey everything that he's commanded us? Are we just making ourselves comfortable? We need to be making disciples so they can grow and become new in Christ and be equipped to go out and find somebody else to pour into and over and over and over again because that's Jesus' plan for how to reach the world. So now you saw the picture, and maybe you're saying, okay, James, I get it. Make disciples is a mandate from Jesus. That's God's plan to reach the whole world, but there's still no way I can do it. I don't know the first thing about making disciples. Well, that's where you go back to square one, where I already said making disciples, making anything, is about materials and ability, and both those things are given from God. See, the thing is we are to make disciples, well, disciples of who? Disciples of whom? I'm not sure how to phrase that grammatically. But we understand the idea. It's not to make disciples of me. I'm not supposed to make disciples of myself. If we're making disciples who are followers of Christ, in order to do that, I hope this doesn't sound too simple, we need to be following Christ. If we're following Christ, we can be a disciple maker. Even if we're not the most mature Christ follower, all we've got to do is reach back to somebody who's further behind than us. To to be a disciple-maker, seriously, you only have to be one step ahead of the person you're discipling. And you grab their hand and you say, okay, I'm one step ahead of you. We're both going this way. I'm following Jesus. You just follow me. You'll be a disciple-maker. So again, even though God's going to use us in this making process, he's the one doing all the heavy lifting. He's the one drawing people to himself. We just need to go out and find some materials. We need to find some people who want to be discipled. And then we're going to use the talents and the ability and the resources he's given us to help part of that process. Now, honestly, here's the deal, and I don't know that this is true everywhere, but I think this is really true here at Cape Bible Chapel. The materials part is pretty easy. If you want to find somebody to go out and pour into, I'm going to guarantee you that's not going to be hard. I get people in my office every week, I'm not lying. I had people already today standing here who come and say, man, I wish I had somebody who would disciple me. Wish I had somebody to pour into me. Dan gets it. Cliff gets it. Every staff guy gets it. We get old people. We get young people. We get mature believers. We get less mature believers. Every week somebody's coming. We are so blessed. Every week we have hundreds of college students who show up, and a vast majority of them are the ones who are coming to me and saying, man, I wish somebody would pour into me. I'm going to try and do something. I don't think this is going to backfire on me, but I, just, I didn't tell anybody I was going to do this. If you want somebody, disciple you, if you want somebody to pour into your life, would you raise your hand right now? There's your materials. They're all over the place. It's not like we have to look far to find this. It's right here in our church. My guess would be if you'd pray about this, you can check out of the message for a few minutes and, and ask God for some guidance. And you'd walk up to somebody here today at the end of the service and say, hey, God's put you on my heart, I'd love to disciple you. I think they'd say yes. I think they'd probably jump at that idea. Here here at Cape Bible Chapel, we never seem to have an end to the number of folks who come and ask to be discipled. The materials are out there. So now it's just a matter of us figuring out how will God use us in the make process? How has he created us and wired us to be able to make a disciple of his? Because it's not a cookie cutter thing. He's gonna use the special things he's put in us to do that, I guarantee it. Here's the way the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. It says, He, God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. Believe me, that's not an exhaustive list of the things that he's given. There are lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and Romans and 1 Peter. Those aren't exhaustive. God's wired you to do this. But he's given us this gift. He's wired us the way we are for a reason. And here it says, It's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. We're going to attain to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of the Christ that we're following. Scripture says when we have a relationship with God, we're given at least one special gift, a spiritual gift, and we're supposed to use that in ministry. We're supposed to use that to build the body. And when we do that, it's going to bring glory to God. So whatever spiritual gift you have, use that to make disciples. I've been so blessed the last several months. My buddy Cliff Ford has come on staff here. And I knew Cliff before, but I didn't know him real well. But one of the gifts that Cliff has is the gift of encouragement. And so Cliff, he isn't even intentionally discipling me, but I hang out with him, and he encourages people left and right. And it's rubbing off on me. And I'm saying, man, I need to do that. Do I take time to stop and encourage people? I had somebody here in the, in the office just knock it out of the park yesterday on some things I'd asked him to do. And it was deadline time. It was right before the, the service. And, and, you know, afterward I was like, man, thank goodness they got that done. And when I should have been, oh, my gosh, thank you so much for doing that. I need help in that. Well, Cliff models that in front of me. He didn't even know he's doing it. It's not hard for him to be encouraging. That's how God's wired him. And so I'm trying to be more like Cliff as Cliff's trying to be more like Jesus. The psalmist tells us this way in Psalm 139, verse 14, I'll give thanks to you. I'll give thanks to God for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The way we're wired, the way we're made, God did that intentionally. In Luke chapter 12 and verse seven, it tells us God knows everything about us. It says, indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear your more valuable than many sparrows. When we go to make disciples, we can go knowing that God's wired us to do it. He's put something, some kind of unique something in us that's gonna help us do that. That's part of the ability, part of the talent, part of the knowledge, part of the recipe. Like Cliff with the gift of encouragement. He just doesn't have to work at that. God gave it to him. Early on, after I was a very, very immature Christ follower, I was on Young Life staff and I had a mentor and he had the gift of discernment. That guy was so valuable to me. He taught me so many things about how to study the Bible. I needed that guy at that time. We're supposed to use the stuff that God's wired in us because he's a personal God. He's a relational God. He's put that in us, and then he's walking with us. When Jesus came to earth, he was relational. The text indicates that today. He said, hey, I'm going to be with you. So many of the examples we read in the Gospels, those are about relationships. He uses these concepts, these pictures that hopefully we can put in our head. He talks about fathers and children, relationship. He talks about vine and branches. He talks about sheep and shepherds. Because he wanted people to understand and grasp, hey, you don't have to do this alone. We don't have to come up with the ability to make disciples on our own. By definition, there's no way we could make disciples of Christ by ourselves anyway. He's with us. And so he gives us those pictures to help us grasp it. You see the illustration of the vine and the branch in John chapter 15, verse 5. I love this illustration. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You guys are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, that's relationship, by the way, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can't make disciples, so I'll be with you. (laughs) And then you can. And then we read just a few verses later about what the purpose of having that kind of intimate relationship with God is. In verse 8 of John 15, it says, My Father's glorified by this. When you bear much fruit, you prove to be my disciples. Here's a sad truth. People who aren't Christ followers can't grasp the beauty of that verse. They don't get the relationship there. I've been around a long time. I've talked to a lot of people, and I've heard people say, and it just it saddens me. Oh, I, don't, I don't even go to church. I don't even believe in God. I don't like religion. All religion is a bunch of rules. God telling you do this, don't do that. I mean, sadly, (laughs) I must be missing that part in Scripture. Where are those passages? I see the illustration of the vine and the branch. The vine doesn't tell the branch, grow this way, but don't grow that way. That's not what it says. The vine provides the branch with guidance and with all the stuff it needs, energy and nutrients to grow and to be abundant. That's what it does. It does that in relationship. Now, yeah, in the end of that passage, we understand the branch grows best and wisest when it's pruned. I mean, that's the part we don't like. But clearly the message in there is that it's for our own good. And so that we'll be even more abundant. That's a hard lesson. That's not a confusing one. I think sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that a relationship with Christ is like this big game of Jesus Says. You ever play Simon Says as a kid? I used to love that game. We played that one in young life a lot too. And we'd always play with big groups so it was easy to get people out. I mean, you'd do the regular stuff. You know, Simon Says, touch your nose. Simon Says, stand on one foot. After, you know, the, the riffraff would fall out early, you know, there'd always be like, you know, maybe 50 kids left out of a group of 150, and they'd be scattered all over the place. And so I'd say, okay, hold on a second. You guys are too far apart. Everybody come in together. And like lemmings, they'd all walk. To the middle. <laughs> You're all out. <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's a great game to play. I love that game. For some reason, we think Christianity's like that. We think Jesus says, well, hey, you, you got to pray. So Jesus said to pray, I'll pray. Jesus says to tithe, so I'll tithe. Ooh, I went to a party. Whoops. Jesus didn't say that. I'm out. Is that what that's supposed to look like? Where did did we get that idea? That's not what a relationship with Jesus looks like. Jesus teaches from the example of the sheep and the shepherds. Are there any professional shepherds here today? Now, see, we lose some of this. We lose the ability to grasp it because we don't live in an agrarian-based society anymore. But folks who read this back in the day, they got it. When Jesus is talking sheep and shepherds, he's talking about relationships. Because in Jesus' day, good shepherds cared for sheep. They protected them. They made sure they were fed. When Jesus spoke in John 10 and 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What we should see is relationship. We should see discipleship. We shouldn't see a bunch of rules. Jesus says, and if I mess up, I'm out. That's not a good model for what a relationship with Jesus is like. Jesus being with us to the very end of the age, desiring to have a relationship with us, where we follow him, that's a good model. That's the model we're going to examine this fall for discipleship. So we try to obey this mandate to make disciples. We'll have to be following Jesus ourselves and then pouring into someone else's life as they follow. As they follow us, we're following Jesus. So here's the deal. Don't be overwhelmed by this mandate to make disciples. All we need to do is dig in closer to God ourselves. Now, that will make us ask some pretty hard questions about our relationship. What if you're in that spot and you say, yeah, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I know that he saved me. I know that's not something I could have done myself. He's my Savior, but is he my leader? Do I want to follow him? Is he my teacher? Am I really a disciple of his? When the opportunity comes and we have to make hard choices, are we going to follow Jesus? I never did like those goofy WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? Duh. He's Jesus. (laughs) He'd do the right thing. I know that. That's not the question I'm struggling with. What will I do? How will I apply the fact that I know he'd do the right thing? That's the question for us always. When it comes to decision time, do I really want to be a follower of Christ? Am I really a disciple then? Or do I say, well, yeah, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in you and I'm counting on you for heaven. That's going to be great. I appreciate that. But I don't think I can be a follower of yours you know, while I'm here on the earth because, let's be honest, some of your disciples, they're kind of weird. They raise their hands when they sing. Some of them pray in public. Oh, no. They want me to be in a small group, and I'm sure they're going to ask me to share my struggles no, I don't want to be transparent with them. I trust you, God. I want to be in a relationship with you. I'm looking forward to that heaven thing. but Let's just keep it between you and me. Does that sound anything like the kind of relationship God wants to have with us? What if we're not quite that brutal? What if we say, okay, Jesus, I believe in you. and I'm going to trust into you for heaven. And I'll even go to your, one of your churches. But I really can't be involved in all that ministry stuff because I'm pretty busy already. I got a job, I got a mortgage, I got kids. My kids play sports. Every now and again, I need to play a little golf to unwind. I can't really join you in the ministry. Hey, thanks. That spiritual gift you gave me to make disciples, to help a lost and hurting world, I really won't be able to use that. Thanks. I'll still show up on the weekends, though. I'm looking forward to that heaven thing. Is that how we're going to make disciples? You know, the method that Jesus chose was really formal. And maybe it doesn't sound that way, but it was. The method he chose was an invitation into a relationship and he used it over and over and over again as he calls his, calls his disciples. And it's this invitation. Follow me. We're going to look at that example over and over this fall. Follow me. It was so easy to understand. It was so powerful. The Apostle Paul took it up. He used it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Follow me. As I follow Christ. Please get this. Don't just follow me. (laughs) Heaven knows we don't need a bunch of little mini-me's out in the world. By God's grace, I'm so blessed. I'm discipling three different guys. I'm trying to answer God's call, that mandate to make disciples. But in in those relationships, that's all I'm doing. I'm trying to follow Jesus, and I'm trying to get them to follow me. If I'm not following Jesus, you don't need to follow me. Just follow the Jesus parts. I read a story one time, I don't know if it's true or not, about Chester A. Arthur, history buffs. Chester A. Arthur was the 21st president of the United States, and somebody got invited to like a formal dinner with the president, and he was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to do. I don't know which fork to use, I don't know what to do, whatever. And his buddy said, go, go to the dinner and just look at the president. Do everything he does. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. So he we went, and you know, whenever Chester A. Arthur would pick up a certain fork, he'd pick it up, and he made it through all the courses of the dinner. It was amazing. And he got to the very end, and they brought out some coffee. And so he watched, and the president took, and he poured the coffee, and he took it out of his little cup, and he poured some in his saucer. So the guy said, okay, I don't know what's going on. You know, he poured some in his saucer. Well, then the president took, and he added some milk and some sugar into this coffee in the saucer. So the guy did that. You know, it wasn't a big deal. And then the president bent over and put it on the floor for his cat. Jig was up. The, (laughs) The idea is we follow people as they're following Christ. That's the thing that we want to do. And it's not a game, as Simon says. When we mess up, when I mess up, I'm not out. We have to deal with consequences. We have to face the consequences of poor decisions. But we keep playing. And we keep following Jesus. Because these guys that I disciple, we're just doing life together. We have a relationship. And by God's grace, I'm just trying to point these guys to Christ. Christ. See, our job as disciples becomes pretty easy. It's not to overly punish or to overly praise. It's just to make. It's to recognize the materials around us and it's to recognize the way God's wired us and he's given us these abilities, these resources, these talents. And so we're supposed to go out and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And then they're supposed to do the same and over and over and over again. That's the question for this fall. Are we on board with that? What will we be making this semester and for the rest of our lives in Christ? I'm going to close our service today by taking communion. I think it's a great opportunity. Scripture says when we observe communion, we get to examine our hearts, to confess our sins. And so this is going to be a great time to stop and and be challenged by this question. What am I making? Am I making myself comfortable? Am I making a lot of money? Am I making a name for myself? How am I doing and making disciples. Let Jesus meet you there. I'm going to pray for the bread and cup. If you're new to Cape Bible Chapel, the elements are at the tables around you. Jeff's going to come play some music, have a little response time. You do that. Examine your heart. When you're ready, come and take the elements. Understand, of course, this is the Lord's Supper. It's not Cape Bible Chapel Supper. If you're a believer, come. If you see somebody around you, you have a hard time getting to the elements. You want to serve them, that would be great. Please feel free to do that we pray for our time. Father God, we thank you. I thank you, Lord. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but when I asked the question, who wants to be discipled? There There were so many hands that went up. God, we want to grow closer to you. God, by your grace, place people in our lives who will help us. Place people who are one step in front of us and following hard after you. And they'll reach back and grab us. Take us with them. Thank you for your promise that you'll be with us as we do it. God, we need you so desperately for this. It's so impossibly big. We can't do it on our own. We need you. What are we making, God? We love you. Thank you for your word, the truth in it. Give this time to you. Thank you for the chance to come together and worship. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.